Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10-9 Central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I am joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Ken, welcome to the last Politics Guys of 2023. It's hard to believe. You know, it was it was weird. I was getting things set up. I'm teaching a winter session class. And so the, the end of it's going into 2024. I don't know about you, but 2024 and 25 feel like they must, in fact, be the distant future. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it can't, you know, next year can't be 2024. And the year after that cannot be 2025. Uh, and, you know, that's something like, you know, I, I don't know. It would be, it'd be like Donald Duck blasting into space kind of future or something. I don't know. It just can't be. Can't be next year. <laughs> is this a part of what just being forty is? I mean, I know you've been there, Ken. So is, is this this is the the inevitable result of all of that? Yeah, I do think so. I, I think when I was your age, I experienced the passage of time kind of the way you're describing it. Like it just seemed impossible that I could be living to be go that far into the future. You know, now now that I'm an old man, I it's I look at every year as all right. I'm one step closer to retirement. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love it. I love it. So I do want to let our listeners know, and I'll remind us at the end as well, uh, that this is our last weekend show. So Ken and I, we will, as always, uh, be having our supporters show uh, uh, next week. Uh, But this is our last weekend show. Uh, uh, And then actually, I I take that back, actually, because uh, we'll have one last 2023 because Mike and uh, Jay will resume the weekend show on December 30th. So they'll get one just in. I was looking at my calendar. Yeah, so they'll just they'll get one just in at the end of 2023. This is the last for us, though, Ken. Uh, and, and and we'll move from there. We do this every year. Uh, and, and, and so just a heads up on that front that we will be taking that Christmas week off as we always do. So before we get to the to the break, though, well, kind of like Congress, you've got to get the last few things done and in, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so what better segue than to talk about the defense bill this week getting passed? As a matter of fact, early on Thursday, the House passed its annual bill, sending the $886 billion in spending to the president. Now, that National Defense Authorization Act, or as you're oftentimes going to see it in the news, the NDAA, includes some pretty key items. A, five to, a 5.2% pay raise for troops, uh, funding Crane, although not the additional levels of funding that Biden was asking for, uh, and the continuation of a pretty controversial foreign surveillance program. And it got passed despite there being a lot of House Republicans uh, who, uh, who were against its passage. And they really kind of were into two camps. You had one group of Republicans who were against it because they did not want the $886 billion. They did not like that number. Uh, then you had another camp of Republicans and a few Democrats, although it didn't change their votes. Uh, there were a few other uh, Republicans, though, uh, who did not like the extension of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, and what that does is it enables the United States to monitor foreign nationals using U.S.-based messaging services without a warrant. Uh, and uh, so really, like I said, the, the rest of the, the, the lack of the support was a variety of amendments 
that the House version of the bill had originally had, primarily dealing uh, with immigration, but a variety of other sundry things uh, that just did not have the support in the Senate to move forward. But it does get passed. It does get passed and on, on the president's desk before Christmas. So, you know, Ken, what I kind of thought we would do is one kind of talk about what the spending bill itself means moving forward for the broader set of spending packages that have to happen. This is the first one. Uh, And then also some of your thoughts more specifically on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, because that's one of the ones that I'll be honest, gives me some heartburn. But I thought we'd talk about that second. Sure. Um, So you 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 want to know my thoughts on the bottom line number? Yeah, let's talk talk about the, the, the fact that it got passed. And it's a number, yes. Yeah, well, I think it's basically good that it got passed. Um, you know, I, I guess one thing that it, it's an interesting um, additional example of that we've been seeing more and more is uh, that the, the it's not actually possible for the House to pass any bill at all without some Democratic votes. And so that actually is giving the Democrats a bit more influence on uh, what, what, what comes out of the House than they would otherwise have because there's there's no bill coming out of the house without at least a few democratic votes and uh, and I think that did mean that you know some of the some of the uh, hard rights priorities uh, which were mostly on kind of social policy issues buried into the uh, defense bill stuff like um, no drag shows on military bases and things like that uh, that stuff all had passed the house the first time around but it all got stripped out in order to get the bill through um, you know I think I think it it doesn't um, it doesn't contain nearly enough money for for Ukraine. Uh, I think there is something like eight hundred million dollars in there for Ukraine, and uh, the 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 uh, Pentagon's request had been in the tens of billions. So it's you know less less than a tenth of a penny on the dollar from what was requested, um, and I, I think that is problematic. Um, but I think sort of blocking military aid for Ukraine was the main thing that the far right managed to accomplish. And other than that, I think you've got a you know reasonably good consensus uh, defense bill, and it's and it's good to see Congress functioning and actually get something enacted by very large majorities in both the Senate and the House. In the end, uh, in fact, in the House, it was by the necessary two thirds vote, which was needed to uh, uh, get get quickly past all the procedural obstacles that a, a minority could have thrown up, um, uh, even even to, against a vote that it, where there was a majority to carry the bill. So I basically think it was a reasonably good day uh, for Congress. The number, it's very hard for me to evaluate the top line number. I don't have that kind of expertise. And, you know, do we need 886 million or do we only need 786 I mean, it's billion or 786 billion. I, I really don't know. I don't know what every penny is going towards. But I, I do have some faith that with such uh, large bipartisan majorities for it in, in both houses, uh, that there's less than the usual amount of fraud, waste and abuse in there, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that's, a, that's a hopeful thought. Uh, <laughs> I'm always a little bit, you know, this is one of the areas where I probably uh, uh, don't align. You know, I'm always trying to be uh, you know, upfront with, with with listeners. You know, one of the areas where I probably don't align, I'm not a, a particular hawkish individual. Uh, and so, you know, my defense uh, spending would, I, I'm going to probably be even more of a, of a fiscal conservative on military spending than yeah. other things. Uh, but, you know, I, I think you're right. It's going to be difficult to to kind of parse some of that out. Now, one of the things I thought about on that number, and you had already started to zero in on it, was, was discussion of the funding for Ukraine. Because, of course, that number, like I had mentioned, and then you reiterated, uh, was far lower than what uh, the, the defense agencies wanted for Ukraine. And as a matter of fact, earlier in the week, of course, Ukrainian President Zelensky was in Washington attempting uh, to lobby for that. But if, uh, but this morning, uh, uh, Friday morning, uh, Hungary actually ended up blocking 54 billion in European aid uh, to the Ukraine, uh, and so this really is going to be the money that they get. But I think this sets up maybe there, there's kind of, I think there's kind of two questions that's going along when we're thinking about the spending on this term. You know, I, I think there are some. Obviously, hungry Ukraine. This is that's a support for Russia in this hard stop period, right? I mean, I, I don't think there's a lot of, of discussion to be had said there, but I do think there is more broadly in Europe and emerging in the United States the question of how much and how long can we continue to spend for Ukraine and what we can do. In part, for me, if you think about now at the beginning of that conflict. 
you know, none of us as hosts thought that Ukraine would hold out as long as they have. They continue to hold out. And the question is, is you know, what what is the cost and how much can we do for that? Uh, you were talking there about, you know, not hitting what uh, uh, Zelensky and other Defense Department men- members wanted. But I think this is going to continue to be a question, which is how much how much is the right amount to keep Ukraine moving forward, especially if it appears that Europe is is going to be effectively blocked moving forward? What do you think about that, Ken? Well, yeah, you're right. First of all, to r- remind me that I I, did, I was very skeptical up front at the beginning that it would be possible uh, for, for Ukraine to hold out. But um, I, I've kind of changed my views on that based on uh, how well they have been doing. You know, it seems that th- their their performance as a military has exceeded expectations to such an extreme degree that, um, you know, it makes me start thinking about things like, well, you know, Afghanistan managed to defeat the Soviet Union in a war. Afghanistan also <laughs> also managed to, Afghanistan also managed to defeat the United States in a war. And, uh, um, and Vietnam managed to defeat the United States in a war. So I, I think it's, it's actually the Davy and Goliath story that you see it. it it's not as impossible as, as I was maybe first thinking about it, but it is absolutely impossible without uh, uh, Western support. And, and I, I think the investment is worth it for all kinds of reasons. Uh, you know, I think uh, Ukraine is a, a fledgling democracy at the heart of the former Soviet Union. It's basically in a location that is the wall between Russia and Europe. Um, I think both Russia and China uh, would be very encouraged uh, in, in sort of continued military aggression against small neighbors. China's certainly been eyeballing Taiwan. Um, you know, if it seems like the, the Western democracies are, you know, going to put in, you know, kind of a token resistance and then fold up at a certain point. And I don't think that's good for the security of the world at all. I don't think that's good for democracy at all. You know, I think the reason we have alliances like NATO is to 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 really try to maintain a world order where uh, aggression uh, like like Putin's aggression in Ukraine uh, against democracies uh, will always be resisted so that there's a very high deterrence against them doing it. And so I'm, I, I would grant every penny of, uh, of the Biden administration's request, which, as I said, is more than a thousand times the number of dollars that uh, Congress actually allocated. It's a hundred, but you you had said that the oh, right first time. Just oh, heads up. Oh, 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 I, it's a uh, it's he wanted he wanted, it's a hundred times. They, okay, one one cent on the dollar. Yeah, I mean again, it's not a yeah. No, you you had said that the first time too, and yeah, you were correct okay, anyway. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm just making you consistent with yourself. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay. Okay, when you're yeah, already you. right, I have yeah, to keep yeah, okay, being okay. right. That's all. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> now, I mean, I guess the last thing I'll say on that before we move to talk a little bit more about the foreign surveillance is, uh, you know. <clears throat> I one of the one of the long the only way you have those kinds of asymmetric but state to state. So one of the things for listeners when you're thinking about military conflicts, right? You can have asymmetric between a state and a non-state actor, but in this t- case, we have an a, a, an asymmetric conflict between a state and a diff- another state actor, and those are those are different kinds of things because they both have territory. So in this kind of conflict. Uh, and so you're right, Ken, I think this is more attuned to what you were talking about in terms of, I think, especially Afghanistan, you know, the possibility of just holding out and holding out and holding out and holding out, uh, which is, in fact, what Afghanistan was able to do against, well, then the Soviet Union uh, in a past history. But of course, the, I mean, you're talking about a multi uh, set of year contract. So one of the things that had given me a little bit of pause uh, that changed. I, I kind of was thinking about this and writing things up this week for it. Uh, but when it, it, it when it became apparent this morning that Europe has no more uh, uh, funding for Ukraine, I guess now it makes me pause and say, well, are we going to I mean, even if we, the the amount we were that Biden administration had asked for before was in part contingent on the continued support of Europe. But if Europe isn't going to have any support for Ukraine, are we able to fill both of those holes? And I don't have an answer to that question, but that, that was my big question mark was, oh, you know, how does that work moving forward? Uh, of course, these things happen simultaneously, so nobody was thinking about it in those terms. But of course, as this comes forward, there is still going to be asking for funding for Ukraine. What do you, what do you think in that context of the fact that Europe is seemingly going to just be blockaded uh, uh, from being able to provide support moving forward because of support for Putin primarily? 
Yeah, but it's not the same because, you know, if this was the United States, you know, we wouldn't be, if the United States wouldn't give aid, you know, then the state of Ohio or the state of Oklahoma can't just give aid. But that's not how it works in Europe. Uh, The European countries will still give plenty of military aid to Ukraine. It's just that the European Union as an institution won't give military aid to Ukraine. So certainly it's a it's a it's a significant problem that the that Hungary is able to block the EU from giving military aid. But but Germany's still going to give military aid. France is still going to give military aid. I I, I hope the UK is still going to give military aid. So it's, it's not like Europe is completely cutting them off the way we sort of are. Okay, so let's shift gears then and talk about the temporary extension of the foreign surveillance program. So just as a reminder for listeners, what this was, it's a little piece, it's not really dealing with funding, but it was one of the only writers that made it as part of the NDAA. And what that is, is it is a extension of the Section 702 portion uh, of the uh, uh, of the Foreign Surveillance Act, which what it did was it allowed FBI agents primarily to use that to surveil non-U.S. citizens abroad for foreign intelligence purposes when they're having messages to individuals inside the United States. In other words, it's the United States side of a digital conversation that law enforcement can get and asks for. What makes it, of course, controversial is that it can all be done without a warrant. Uh, and so to date, searches for Americans' communication, including the use of protesters, racial justice acti- uh, uh, activists, 19,000 unique donors to congressional campaigns, journalists, and even we now know some members of Congress. Uh, So effectively, this is kind of a punt of the status quo until April when it's going to come up again. This is one of those weird items, though, Ken, where you get both some individuals on kind of the the right and the left coming together who don't like this, but the middle liking it. so uh, what's your take on on the foreign surveillance? I was sad to have it be part of it, although I didn't think since it was a punt until April that it, it warranted uh, uh, taking the whole bill down. But I would happily like to see this slide into the night forever. Yeah, my my views on that have changed uh, um, recently as well, I guess. I, I would have been really 100% aligned with you for a lot of the history of the um, FISA. Um, but I think because of the world situation uh, right now, I, I actually think it's more relevant um, to, to have it than it has been in a while. Um, and I, I'm really talking both about um, the uh, – the, the 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 wars the wars in Ukraine and in Israel and um, and also the the linkages between the American far right and and foreign far right dictatorships and I, I I think that some of that stuff does have to be monitored um, and and so the you know the FISA section seven hundred two um, it it allows the um, the the U S intelligence services to put wiretaps on foreign nationals who are not located in the United States, um, but it would still allow those that monitoring to happen, even if they're talking to someone who's inside the United States. So, so I think that the, both the civil liberties objection and the, the you know the argument that it's needed, you know, relate around the fact that this is going to allow warrantless wiretapping of conversations between American citizens who are in the United States and foreign nationals who are outside the United States. Um, but I, I I think there's just much greater national security need for some of that kind of wiretapping right now than than I can remember at, at any time uh, over the past 20 years. And uh, so I've also been a critic of, of FISA wiretapping, but I, I I'm I'm a little more um, uh, seeing a little more need for it right now is what I would say. I guess my problem with that though is 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 well two one it is it. it it is always an issue for me when you're not having a warrant because the question becomes, why don't you think you can get the warrant? <laughs> right? well, so if there's in fact good reason to think that it's po- you know, this is this is necessary, take a judge. Yeah, but um, it's 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 national security uh, surveillance. It's not uh, criminal law enforcement surveillance. So there there may be. Um, I mean, you're talking about the FBI in this case. I mean, obviously, there is some domestic element to it. Otherwise, we'd only be talking about, say, like the CIA. Well, right, right. But yeah, well, it, it, actually, I don't I don't know that FISA is specific only to the FBI. Is, is that right? 
FISA at least includes the FBI, and they are the ones who have been using it the most extensively. I know those two things. I can't answer the other question. Yeah, I would have thought it would also have applied to the NSA and the CIA and that, that it's just generally allowing uh, for foreign intelligence wiretapping. And yeah, I take your point about the FBI. I mean, I, I probably would be willing to actually concede that part of it, that, that if it's the FBI doing the wiretapping, they should be doing it in a law enforcement capacity and therefore they should not be doing it unless they have both probable cause and necessity. I, I, I think you're right about that. Okay. Um, well, yeah, okay, okay. But, but, I was a little but, surprised at yes, first. Yes, I thought you yeah. were saying, okay, okay. No, okay. no, no but, but I was thinking more of CIA and NSA wiretapping. And the, the CIA and NSA wiretapping is, is never going to be used in a law enforcement capacity. And it's just going to be used in an information gathering uh, capacity. And, and I think if, you know, if there's, um, you know, if, if, the, if, if elements, say, of the American far right right now, are, you know, actually, you know, in communication with Putin and Orban and people like that um, about how to use, you know, extra legal means to advance their agenda here and how they can get foreign support to do that. Um, I, I think that that's something that our, our intelligence services actually need to uh, be on top of. And, uh, and, and, and similarly, like, you know, I think Hamas may even have been, you know, getting um, some communications with some people uh, in the United States or, or in other parts of the world because the FISA wiretapping also would allow wiretapping of phone calls between people in, in other countries and other people in different countries. Um, and, and that's part of the 702 authority also. It's not, it's not always authorizing uh, calls where one of the people is actually in the United States. And, and so I, I think that we, we, um, you know, we, we need that kind of information um, in order for our, uh, our intelligence agencies to be able to understand what's happening in the world and to, to head off threats. And, uh, and that includes both threats to other countries as well as threats to the United States. So I, I, I just think it is necessary. But I, I do agree with you. It's not ever really necessary in a law enforcement capacity. I mean, I hear that, but I'm being honest, it sounds so similar to the arguments that were made on the right during the Bush administration uh, about those kind of circumstances. And I can't help as a, you know, as a Latin Americanist scholar hear uh, uh, some of both left and right's use of those in their history as ways of effectively saying, well, we have to defend ourselves. And, and but but if we're if the tools that we use to defend ourselves undo the very essence of what we are, have we really have we really saved anything? I mean, I mean, that's probably a bigger question than we can than we can take on just in the terms of, well, uh, of foreign surveillance. Yeah. But so again, I, I'm not suggesting you know I'm not suggesting that there isn't a point that you have there. However, I am always going to be more skeptical of that kind of immediate need to say, well, in this day and age, the thing that ah, we might not have done before, we just have to do it right now because those things never seem to roll back; they become permanent parts uh, of, uh, of state action. And then those, they only ever seem to move in one direction primarily. Right. And so I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I get that. I mean, again, it, it, I think that was, that was in, in fact, I think the point of many in the Republican party in, in the wake of nine 11 for increasing the amount of, uh, uh, of surveillance and NSA powers back then as well. And, and I was skeptical of it at that, in that time as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I share all those concerns, but I just think I, I apply them a little bit differently. So I, in terms of the, the essence of what we are, you know, I, I certainly agree with you that the essence of what we are, it's something that we should be trying to save is a, a free country that's not a surveillance state where, where people aren't being continuously surveilled by the government the whole time. I certainly agree that's part of the essence of what we should be trying to save. Um, I, I think on the other hand, you know, other, other things we're trying to save, uh, we are uh, a, an electoral democracy, for instance. Uh, we, we have elections. The, the, the winner of the election gets, gets to take power. Um, there was an actual, you know, actual Russian plot to, to help Trump uh, interfere with that. And, and I think if, if that kind of plot had a, for, a foreign plot to essentially take over the United States through through an American uh, agent who who wouldn't leave office even after he lost an election and and who um, you know had a lot of foreign help in uh, trying not to lose the election by for instance you know all the, all the disinformation that Russian uh, bot farms sent out on social media and things like that then you know if foreign countries can can essentially defeat us by undermining our democracy that that's something we need to save ourselves against also so. I 
I don't, I don't think there's a I don't think there's a, a perfect Panglossian situation here where you know we get to be the real America if if we just refrain from doing one thing and and we and we and we don't get to be the real America if we do it because I think there's there's serious threats to Americanism um, and then I think on the other part of what what you said about things you know any any kind of um, encroachment of uh, authoritarianism the more the more the America the more the American people will learn to live with certain aspects of authoritarianism, the more that never goes back in the other direction. You know, I, I don't know that that's entirely true. I mean, I, I think it, it um, I think you can see examples of, of, uh, of, of, of kind of waxing and waning uh, of different kinds of um, uh, uh, times of civil rights. You know, we, we had uh, probably much, much greater uh, protection of, of all kinds of civil rights in this country um, during the era of the the Warren Court and its immediate aftermath um, in the 1950s and 60s and early 70s that where where the, the the court was really protecting individual rights to a much higher level than it did um, before or since and so you know I'm focusing on the before part here that um, uh, you know American protection for civil liberties really was much greater. Um, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, than at any earlier time in American history. So, so we we didn't, you know, we 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 had a, a long history. For instance, when you talk about the FBI, you know, from when the FBI was created, uh, you know, until the Warren Court started reining it in in the 50s, they they respected literally zero civil liberties ever. They violated the law exactly as they pleased all the time, and and that got um, finally reined in decades later. So I I don't think it's always a one way street where encroachments against rights just Always, always grow and grow and grow. Well, I'll say that we probably need to maybe sort of pause there as, yeah, we, yeah. as we move forward. <laughs> not that that's not an important topic. We, 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 you can have a whole show just on that. Yeah. Um, but the other big item that we wanted to get to is kind of a two-part item, and it's a continuation in in some ways of what Mike and Jay covered last week. So uh, to set all of this up, this week, Republicans voted 221 to 212 uh, to open an impeachment probe against Biden. And the investigation is to look at if Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings were used to help Biden. Um, specifically, they're looking at the actions of Hunter in, the U- in Ukraine and in China. Now, the White House has dismissed the inquiry as unsubstantiated by any particular now, this goes along with also this week, Hunter Biden uh, defied a subpoena to testify in private to Congress. And the reason he defied that subpoena was saying that he feared his words would be misrepresented. He went on to say, quote, there is no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen, end quote. Now, uh, Ken and excuse me, Ken, Mike and Jay last week had looked a little bit at kind of the Hunter Biden dealings and, and, and their bottom line takeaway was Hunter Biden is probably doing shady, illegal things and uh, uh, and that that therefore warrants some scrutiny. Jay was far more likely to say, look, there's no connections to Biden yet, but I think it warrants further investigation. Where Mike, on the other hand, was saying, look, this is this is bad, but there doesn't really appear to be anything at all that even suggests that we need to connect further with uh, with dealing with Biden. There's just not a lot uh, to suggest that could even happen. So I, what I did was I thought, well, since we're going to have to cover this uh, in, in terms of the impeachment vote and then uh, uh, Hunter Biden not testifying, I thought I'd look at it a little bit. And and so for me, I had not looked deeply at the Hunter Biden stuff. Uh, that doesn't he doesn't particularly interest me all the time, but I wanted to prepare for this. And so it kind of reminded me when we did the show on Justice Thomas, Ken, <laughs> yeah, yeah. where I kind of thought eh, this is probably like a lot of a lot of, in this case, a lot of right wing guys getting at him. And the more you look at Hunter Biden side of things, at least, man, the worse it really is. Like, I didn't realize quite how bad. So if you look at the evidence and if, and if listen, listeners, if you want a really quick takeaway, if you want to do everything I did, you can actually go get some pretty cool summaries from PolitiFact. Um, and, and so what you can what you start to see is, is that during the six years um, where Hunter Biden was having some deep problems with drug abuse, he had some really close ties to Ukraine, Romania, China and Kazakhstan. And in short, got about $25 million to the Biden family and Biden family associates during that period, which doesn't appear that he really did anything for them other than he's a Biden. 
um, meaning that he's just kind of exploiting his last name. Of that 25 million, just shy of 5 million went directly to himself, that is Hunter Biden, uh, to his brother James Biden, to Haley Biden, and then to this unknown Biden account that we don't know who has links to. All of this gets sent through by wire services via a limited liability corporation owned by an associate of Hunter Biden before then heading in to the Biden family accounts. Now, of that $5 million, 89% of it is going directly uh, to Hunter Biden. So, it, I mean, it's pretty clear. Hunter Biden has made a ton of money that absolutely another addict at this period in time would have made last name. Uh, he cashed it in, and then he tried to get around paying taxes and broke some laws in, 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 along the way. Um, now, the, the, the next level of that then is to say, okay, you know, Republicans are then alleging, look, because of all of these uh, of this, you've got to look at President uh, Biden. Now, to this point, though, there's zero evidence that President Biden has been involved in all of this. But the Hunter Biden stuff, man, is just terrible and nasty. So kind of my my takeaway seems to be this, Ken, I'm curious what you think about. Um, I get that President Biden has allowed and I get it, I'm, a, I'm a dad, I'm a father. I think he's let his fatherness overtake the importance of his office. It is way past time for him to clearly state Hunter Biden did terrible, illegal things. He shouldn't have done those things. And I have, you know, that he's never supported those things. And while he does, in fact, support his son as a person and as his father, that that is fundamentally different than supporting him in his business dealings or in his failing to testify and come before Congress, uh, you know, not dealing with the subpoena. Um, because I really think that his move on Wednesday saying, nope, I'm not going to testify, even though I legally have to, in the aftermath of all of these things that he's done, just makes the whole mess look worse. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Axios is uh, reporting that the, this Hunter strategy is causing the White House itself to be really upset. This isn't what he wanted to do, but they're not willing to talk with Biden about it uh, because, according to inside sources, Biden's just not willing to talk about anything Hunter. He's just going to support Hunter Biden no matter what. So that's kind of my takeaway from this. What is your thought? I'm glad we, we get to have one issue at least where we'll 100% disagree. So uh, no, I, I think I think Joe Biden has done everything perfectly. I, I would think he, I mean, not only should he not uh, say that uh, Hunter did anything wrong, um, but you mean in like fact, not paying his taxes. Right, he should not say that, and and in fact, the president should never say that about anybody who hasn't been convicted of anything. Uh, it's completely wrong uh, for a person who's been um, charged but not convicted to have the president of the United States weigh in. Well, you know, Hunter, but, but pause on that real fast. I mean, in this yeah. case, Hunter and his team never denied that he didn't pay the taxes. What's saying now is is that even though he didn't pay his taxes, that he has now finished paying his taxes. After the fact. So he never like Hunter Biden's team has never denied that he tried to get out of paying taxes. They're just saying that now he's paid it back. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. On that well, particular they, front. No, they've pled not guilty to the crimes that he's charged with. And uh, and a lot of people get behind in paying taxes and hear from the IRS about it. And then, hey, and and it's not typical to be charged with a crime in that kind of situation. Um, and and he did, he has, in fact, pled not not guilty. And nobody, no, no official in the government should ever say that anyone is guilty of a crime if that person is pled not, not guilty to the crime. Um, and in this case, it's far more likely that these criminal charges were brought uh, because his name was Biden than because of anything that he did. Um, I, I actually am unaware of, of, of IRS cases where the person is charged after they've already paid up everything. I, I, I'm literally unaware of any other case like that. Um, and, and here you had... Uh, you know, originally this special counsel who was appointed by Donald Trump was was actually ready to close up this case entirely 
on a very minor guilty plea uh, on on charges that didn't relate to these taxes, and then and then it was only because of a huge amount of blowback from the House Republicans uh, because this was Hunter Biden. Um, that the, the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney asked to be designated as a special counsel and 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 and, and reopen this this case. But I I think there's completely nothing nothing to these charges at all. You know, if 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 if, if every fact you said is true, there's still nothing to these charges. That a person who didn't report taxes got got called out on that by the IRS and then re, and then re, re, refiled and paid them. You know, that that's not commonly uh, criminally charged. And 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 then the other issue about. Um, I think the the firearm charge was the one that he was going to plead guilty to before, and they weren't going to bring any tax charges. And then and then only because the the because um, because uh, Weiss had to go in front of the um, the House House uh, uh, Judiciary Committee, and they read in the Riot Act about uh, not charging this tax stuff. I think that's that's only been charged in the in the last month since the original plea deal would not have involved any tax charges whatsoever. Okay, so Ken, as we look at this, what we're seeing is is that he, according to the DOJ, he doesn't pay taxes in 2016. He doesn't pay taxes in 2017. He doesn't pay his back taxes in 2017. He doesn't pay his taxes again in 2018. Doesn't pay his back taxes in 2018 again. Uh, he then in he for 2018 he gets a tax evasion charge. He then gets a filing a false return in 2018 for showing that he had paid when he had not paid. And then in 2018 he also gets a failure to not pay for 2018, and then again a failure to not pay and filing a false return in 2019 for showing that he had paid even though he had not paid. So yeah, so then he doesn't get actually charged with those. Uh, until the very beginning of 2023, it appears. So there's our timeline. Right. Or a different way of stating that same timeline is he he, he did not pay his taxes in those years between 2016 and 2020. Well, and it's to cover it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then he does pay it all in 2021. And after 2021, he's he's completely current in all his taxes, and he doesn't get charged with tax crimes until uh, the middle of 2023, a year and a half later. Right. I mean, again, for in part for filing false returns to attempt to show that he had paid it when he had not paid it. So, I mean, yeah, I, I can understand why you might still be filing charges against somebody because this is the guy who said, oh, I've, I got it all fixed. I've got it all fixed. But twice had purposely filed documents to evade the fact that he owed taxes to make it look like he had paid. So, I mean, I get your point of the the timeline, but we're still talking about an individual here who, because of his over and over and over again attempting to cover this up, I can imagine you're still going to file taxes in that sense because you now have two instances of where he is attempting to make it look like he did when he didn't again. Right. Well, I think the, the the facts that are indisputable are that he didn't pay those taxes in those years. Uh, the, the question of why he waited until 2021 to pay all the taxes that he should have paid in 2016 through 2020. And then you know, filed things to make it look like he had in the past. Yeah, but, but we have not heard his side of the story of that. He's he's pled not guilty. He's going to have to answer that in court. But, um, the, you know, you're just you're just only looking at the prosecutor's side of the story here. And, and I think most of it might be contestable, which is why he's pleading not guilty, right? The, I think the only thing that are not contestable are the actual timelines of when he paid, but that includes the fact that he paid it all uh, long before he was charged. Uh, but the uh, the question of what, you know, whether he intentionally evaded things, um, you know, that's really a, a question of uh, his, his, knowledge, his state of knowledge and his state of mind and his motives. And those are kind of things that the prosecutors are going to have to prove and that he pled not guilty to. I'm also thinking about this in terms as, as a political item, too. Right? I mean, you're absolutely true in, in some of the legal senses that I'm focusing on the prosecutorial side of things. But we're talking about the, the son of the president of the United States. And, and there, that, that is a political item in the same way that when we talked about the dealings of the Trump Corporation and Trump's family uh, is worthy of an investigation, even if it is non-judicial. 
Yeah, but you know, again, you sort of focused earlier uh, on the number twenty-five million. You said he sort of made twenty-five million dollars out of the fact that his father was the president and he was named Biden. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's probably well, and, true. Well, and, and, and to be clear, yeah, he did yeah. not personally. So twenty-five million total to a bunch of individuals. He personally was getting about five million. Right. Yeah. So to be, just to be clear, right, I mean, right. in honest, yeah. 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 So we're, again, we're, you know, we're talking about like 1% of the number that uh, Jared Kushner made off of being the president's son-in-law. He made more than $2 billion off of that with this fund that he raised from the Saudis. And uh, I, I, and I, I, don't, I don't raise that point to say that, therefore, they should be investigating Jared Kushner. But I, I rather raise that point to say that's actually the way it normally works with all presidents, uh, that they, they I mean, I think it was more extreme in the case of the Trump kids than in other kids, and that Hunter Biden's, you know, the, the level that he profited off his connections to the president was probably fairly average for, for most people who are closely related to a president. Uh, but that's that's not itself a crime, and, and he's not actually being charged with that, right? So he is being charged with being late to pay his taxes, and uh, but he's, he's not even being charged with anything related to, you know, how did you make this money? Because it's not a crime for, for someone uh, who is a celebrity of one sort or another to monetize their celebrity. So what is your opinion then on his decision on Wednesday to buy the congressional subpoena? Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% on his side because he didn't defy it. He said he would he would answer all their questions under oath as long as it was in public. But that's not um, how, that's not how subpoena works. Like Congress is to determine that. Like Congress gets to issue a subpoena. They uh-huh. get to decide if you're in public or not in public. And and there's nothing in the uh, congressional's common law that says that they have to abide by your decision of whether it's going to be public or private. Uh, I mean, wh- where is that coming from, Ken? Come on. Well, because they can they can vote him in contempt of Congress uh, if they want to. But well, I of think course, and they yeah, should. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think they probably, I think they probably will. I don't know if I, I, I think they shouldn't, but not, not, not. I, I think they, they could. I'll put it that way. I think. You oh, know, they definitely should. They definitely no, should. No, because he didn't refuse to appear before them. He only yes, refused he did. To... If, listen, listen. If you're saying like, look, if you have the power to subpoena and you have yeah. the power to subpoena the way you want, the other person doesn't get to say, oh, I don't, I'm not going to accept the subpoena unless it's under my terms. I mean, that's the same thing that the Trump guys did, and that was, it, that was BS then and it's BS now. It's not the same thing that the Trump guys did. So um, these guys like Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon and uh, um, also Mark Meadows, for that matter, and Jim Jordan, um, they, they refused to, to, to testify in, in public or in private. They didn't just insist on testifying in public. I, I, I would not have voted to hold them in contempt if they had said, uh, you know, I'll testify, but I just won't testify behind closed doors. I want to testify out in public. If if, if any one of those Trump guys had made that offer, um, I would not have advocated voting them in contempt because there's no legitimate reason that these that these uh, that this is a political proceeding and there's no reason it should take place behind closed doors. I mean, again, we have all kinds of closed doors members of Congress. I mean, we could have a conversation about whether we should have the ability to have closed uh, uh, doors congressional meetings, but we do. So I don't know how you separate those two. I mean, again, we could have an abstract conversation and say, look, should Congress be allowed to do this? And I'd be up for having that conversation. But since we grant that Congress can do it and we grant that Congress has a subpoena power, I just don't see how then you the person who gets the subpoena gets to say, hey, in this case, it doesn't count because, yeah, I, 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 uh, I would disagree in this one. I, I would vote yeah. to find him uh, in contempt of Congress. Well, I mean, if, if the argument you're making is that he has a legal obligation to um, uh, testify because yeah. they subpoenaed him. Yeah, that, that's correct. But, but if you carry that argument all the way out. Well, then, you know, what does the law say happens if he doesn't show up? Well, they have a legal right to vote him in contempt. So fine, they're going to do that. And then what happens next? Well, the Justice Department gets to decide whether they're going to prosecute him for contempt of Congress. Um, And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And even with those Trump guys, you know, they they prosecuted um, uh, Navarro and Bannon. Uh, They did not prosecute Meadows or Jordan. Um, So there there are, you know, so it's it's not an automatic uh, no brainer that if Congress votes somebody uh, in contempt that that's going to be followed up by a criminal prosecution. I would think in this case it wouldn't. And so, you know, to the same but now, extent... But, but yeah, now let's yeah. move it to the political side. Because yeah. again, in this case, this is one where we're similar, right? Like, I mean, I'm yeah. a guy who voted for Biden. 
this in a close this is a close election that apparently Biden is a little behind in right now when you take a look at the polls still too early yeah. to kind of really say this hurts him. I mean, like, I, I don't see how this doesn't hurt him in major ways. And I don't say that as I mean, I'm not taking this as like, yay, I want it to hurt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I say this in terms of like, I'm reading the political lead. I'm a, this is what I do. This hurts. And I don't I don't get it doesn't appear that there's any benefit to, to saying, I mean, he might as well go in and not defy the subpoena, not have to have the DOJ because you're right. And they're going to vote to to I think rightfully they're going to vote to. And it's going to help. It's going to help Trump. It is going to help Trump. Well, I, I, I'll agree with you halfway. This this whole episode is going to hurt Biden and help Trump. Um, what I don't agree with is that uh, it, it's really clear uh, whether um, going through with a prosecution for if, if the Biden administration goes through with a prosecution for contempt of Congress. Well, whether I, I they think, do or they don't, yeah, it's going to yeah, be terrible. Yeah. My point is it's yeah, going to yeah. go to the DOJ. I agree with you on that front. Yeah, but my yeah. point is once the DOJ has it, it doesn't matter what they do. They, if, they, right. if, they pros- if they prosecute it, it's going to hurt Biden. If they yeah. don't prosecute it, it's going to look like he doesn't want it to happen, even though there is, in fact, a wall there, and it's going to hurt Biden. Yeah, yeah well, right. I, I, yeah, I agree with all that, but I think the logic of that implies that it won't get prosecuted because there's no, there's, no, there's no good reason to prosecute it, and he's going to have to take the political uh, uh, punch from this no matter what he does. So I, I think it just ends there. Um, you know, I, I, I wonder why they don't prosecute Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan is the one who issued this subpoena. Jim Jordan himself is uh, not in compliance with the subpoena and against him. And is what well, there was a vote of contempt of Congress against Jim Jordan by the by the mm-hmm. by the House of Representatives. And he hasn't been prosecuted. And I, I, I think that, the you know, if they if they end up uh, deciding to uh, prosecute Hunter Biden, they should bring down an indictment against Jim Jordan the same day. And it's, I, don't, I don't think that will happen. But I, I, I think there's definitely no more justification for a prosecution of Hunter Biden for resisting this subpoena than for one of Jim Jordan, because Hunter Biden, unlike all these other people, uh, did agree to testify in front of the very committee that subpoenaed him as long it was in, as long as it was in public, so that his testimony would not be distorted and misrepresented by by people who are only doing this for political purposes. Anyhow, probably one of the biggest things that we've disagreed about in a while. I mean, we, 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 even when we disagree, though, we disagree weird. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but we, we should, we'll leave Hunter Biden uh, uh, behind uh, and, and we'll move forward to talking a little bit about some updates that have been happening in terms of Israel and Gaza and potentially really kind of a, of a potential growing rift between Biden and Israel. So to kick this off in a meeting on Thursday, Israel's defense minister told National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan that the war in Gaza may take months. And I know that's not what the White House was hoping for. This comes after Joe Biden took out some of his harshest words for the actions of Prime Minister Netanyahu and Israel, arguing that, quote, indiscriminate bombing, end quote, of Gaza was costing its support both internationally and implied, meaning the United States. Meanwhile, domestically, the left has continued to put more pressure on Biden to support Palestinians and to pull back some of its support for Israel. As a matter of fact, this past week, one area where this has really kind of come to the head is the growing rift in Senator uh, Fetterman from progressives. Although, of course, in his case, it's a two-front uh, rift, both with Israel. He, ha- he has been a kind of a strong supporter. And though, of course, he has a desire, he agrees with Republicans on curtailing migration and immigration in the United States, so much so that this week, uh, 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 Fetterman said, I'm not a progressive. And I think that's kind of what a lot of progressives have been thinking in terms of Biden. As a matter of fact, Bernie Sanders, all of his campaign staff has signed an open letter. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign staff signed an open letter uh, a couple of weeks ago now, universally calling for Democrats and specifically President Biden to stop supporting Israel and to start supporting Palestinians and to realize that Palestinians are really the ones uh, uh, who are suffering here. Uh, And so I think one of the big questions becomes, you know, what what is not only what Israel will be doing as they move forward in terms of Gaza, which seems to be a continued attack, uh, in their words, to get rid of this vast underground structure that Hamas has been using, uh, but also pointing out that Hamas's support both in Gaza but now in other locations is 
really high and therefore you can't stop fighting. Uh, and that seems to really run counter, I think, to a lot of the kind of growing consensus in the in the American Democratic Party and I think in other Western European countries that it's time for this to wrap up and be done at best, or perhaps evidence that Israel is in fact a colonial state at worst. And so what do you think about all of that, Ken? Yeah, well, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, a little I'm, thing. It was easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, the political problem that this war is causing uh, Biden and the Democrats generally, uh, it, it's it's serious. But my my hope would be that it will blow over, um, you know, before next November. But of course, that's going to depend on uh, what happens in in Israel over the next few months, and and it's also going to. And how depend- many months is a few months when you're talking about this conflict? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's going to depend on that, and it's going to depend also on how well uh, Biden can re- reunify um, the 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 party afterwards. You know, I I hope and expect that you know his his critics from the left like senator sanders and senator warren and congressman uh, Tlaib and people like that that there will be a certain point in time sometime between now and november where um they will uh re, you know reendorse biden and give their strong support to biden and actually try to help biden get elected and and i think if if that kind of thing does happen um then i you know then what we're seeing right now is just a temporary blip you know that'll that'll be um you know it, i think it can be overcome i don't i don't think it's an automatic problem that there's a, a rift right now over israel and the democrats because i that rift could be resolved and and what really matters is whether whether or not it's resolved um uh and but there's a lot of contingencies there um i i tend to think that uh um israel uh does need to continue to do basically what it's been doing. I don't think that there's much room for them to do much else. And so I think that if if Biden, uh, you know, the more the more public he gets with, you know, criticizing Israel, that's not going to necessarily help him either, because it's um, it's going to come out. It's going to seem a bit ineffectual. Right. The, 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 the more if he you know, I think if he would call for an immediate ceasefire and then that immediate ceasefire wouldn't happen, then, you know, I, th- I think that would make him seem ineffectual. So I think he's a bit constrained on both sides. He's constrained by what his left wants him to do. And he's constrained by what's within the um, world of possibility of, of what Israel might do. Um, you know, I, I do think he's been a somewhat effective you know, within the narrow um, constraints that he set out for himself of, uh, you know, the, the U.S. did play a role in that one week long uh, humanitarian pause when there were still some hostage exchanges. And and that probably wouldn't have happened without U.S. diplomacy. Um, the, the U.S. has played an uh, ongoing role in making it possible for some international aid to come in through Egypt, through the Rafah tunnel, uh, which, again, you know, I don't think Israel would have really done that except for the pressure from the U.S. So I think he's been, you know, Within limited um, within limited grounds, somewhat successful at getting uh, some limited forms of relief to the Palestinians, but I don't see that he can do that much more for them. And and I don't and I don't know what, really what people realistically think he can do. I guess my last question on this, and then I think we may need to close the show, Ken. And this is what I, I really can't answer because I'm not part of the I'm not truly part of the left, right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that is, I have been wrestling. I've been talking about this on Discord is I've been wrestling with, I can't quite understand, is it because of something in the nature of progressivism? Is it something about kind of the post-colonial view of many of democratic parties? It's hard for me to understand this view of Israel as the colonial oppressor. And yeah. and, and it's it's hard. For, like I always want to take the best position of my opponent. Like when, when we take on this show, I'm always trying to, when I think about this show, I always think about like, Okay, what would Ken's view be? And and I don't think about like, okay, and why is Ken wrong? I always try to think to myself, like, what what's what would Ken say? What would be the best view for what would Ken be saying? Right. And so (laughs) I I try to do that here as well. Like, right. Okay, here are people who are very passionate and I get that. I can't but I can't I can't find the the best positive for that. And I I wonder if maybe it's because I'm not part of the left in that sense. (laughs) And so it it, it bothers me a little bit because I can't figure it out. And so as I think about it, I just think like, you just, it just sounds dumb. Like you, you, I just don't understand, you know, especially this past week when we were talking about so many people seemingly were supportive of like, oh, well, that wasn't really, they weren't really sexually assaulting uh, uh, some of the women who were held. I'm like, what? Like, that doesn't yeah. count. Like, I, 
I just couldn't. I mean, it's okay if you're the the oppressed to like sexually. I, I couldn't figure it out. So I guess for my last thing for the show, can since you are part of the left, yeah, I, this rift in the Democratic Party baffles me because I can't understand the good intention. I can't, I can't understand it in a positive way. And so I don't know how to think of it. (laughs) Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. I think I can address it. So I, first of all, uh, I don't accept the narrative that Israel is a settler colonialist state. I, I think Israel is a completely legitimate state. In fact, it, it was born in probably the most legitimate way of any country on earth. It was, it was created uh, by the United Nations um, in a near unanimous vote. Um, uh, as part of the dismantling of colonial empires in that part of the world, um, so I, I don't, I don't think any, I think very few countries have more claim to legitimacy than that. I think the United States is much more of a settler colonialist country in terms of the way you know we got founded by people who came over and killed the natives and took their land, and here we are. Um, you know that that seems to me much more egregious than anything that ever happened in Israel. But but yet I will try to answer your question. Um, the I think the the settler colonialist narrative. Um, which I disagree with, sort of stems from a few things. It stems from the fact that um, uh, the, that area in the in the centuries immediately preceding the state of Israel, uh, creation of the state of Israel, had been first part of the Ottoman Empire and then part of the uh, British Empire. So it had, in fact, been colonialized um, uh, by two recent uh, colonial empires. And the British was the immediate one right before the state creation of the state of Israel. And with the British in particular, I think that narrative reflects the idea that the, the British involvement in Palestine did fit sort of the classical model of settler colonialism. British people came out there from Britain, just like they came here to the United States and Canada and Australia and New Zealand and India, you know, just to, you know, take land and and, uh, extract resources and rule over it. You know, I think in in the case of of the uh, British Palestine, they they also had um, interest in it because of its relationship to the origins of Christianity um, and because of its strategic location in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the, uh, projecting the British Empire out into the Middle East. Um, so there were a lot of reasons I think the British could fairly be accused of settler colonialism in, in the reasons that they had, 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 uh, uh, um, had, had colonized British Palestine. Um, now, I think the, the, the part that probably the, some of the people who continue this narrative would take where I start to part ways with them is, um, you know, there were always some Jewish people living there and, you know, in, in ancient history, of course, it was a Jewish kingdom, but the British also did encourage some uh, Jewish emigration there. And and the British um, encouraged this, you know, even as late as into the early 30s, uh, when anti-Semitism was taking hold in Central Europe, um, uh, Britain was um, uh, still you know, saying, well, it would be good if Jewish people who wanted to leave Central Europe to escape anti-Semitism, if they didn't all come to England, but some of them would go to Palestine. And so there, there was probably a speeding up of emigration to um, uh, Jewish emigration to Palestine during the late days of, of British Palestine. So I suppose from certain perspectives, you could look at this as, you know, the British came. And then the British encouraged other white people who weren't um, from from the Middle East also to come. Uh, and then those people came, and then they got land. Uh, now through that whole period, of course, the only way any Jews ever got land there was just by buying it in the ordinary way that any other immigrant would. And the, and the Jews um, did own a fair amount of land in in the parts of Israel that are inside the. The 1947 Green Line, you know, even before the UN declared that to be a new state of Israel, but but I think the the settler colonialist narrative starts with that idea that this this all arises out of British imperialism, and then you have the British Balfour Declaration, which is the British government declaring that this uh, could be that that uh, in, in Israel there could be a Jewish homeland, and then eventually of the United Nations, which is you know had all the countries in the world in it, but was dominated by the victorious powers in in World War II, uh, declaring that the state of uh, Israel should be created, and so it wasn't. That, that wasn't uh, a, a, that question wasn't put to the local people who live there. That that question was put to the whole world community. So, I suppose those are the arguments for settler colonialism. But it, it you know it leaves out a lot. I mean, it, it leaves out the fact that for one thing, 
about half the Jews who live in Israel are what we would call Sephardic Jews, which means they, they are Middle Eastern Jews. They're not even Jews that came from, from Europe or anywhere else. Um, so the, there's ethnically the Ashkenazi Jews and the Sephardic Jews, and most of the original founders of Israel were the Ashkenazi Jews from Western Europe. But the you know now that's not even the case. So the, the Jews in Israel are mostly uh, just as native to the land as, as the, uh, or to, and, and it also ignores the fact that when Israel was created, Every single uh, Arab country in the Middle East expelled all the Jews, and we we talked about this last time that mm-hmm. Cairo Cairo at one point was one third Jewish, you know, kind of like New York City today, and 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 they they're all expelled when Israel gets created. So so it's sort of hard to think of them as settler colonialists if they wound up there from other parts of if Middle Eastern Jews from other Middle Eastern countries wound up in in Israel because they're expelled from the their countries where they've been for for, for a long time. Um, and so so for those reasons I do reject that narrative. But I, I think that's the explanation of it, which I think you're asking for is how do they see it as a settler colonial country? Well they see it as a kind of uh, overstay of British imperialism there, I think would be the answer. Okay. I I hear that. I hear that. Uh, <laughs> like you yeah. I, I, it's it's hard for me but I hear that. That is helpful. I appreciate it. I hope it's, I hope that listeners, you guys appreciate that too. Thanks for being our, our leftist, Ken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that being said, I do want to just say, I, I think that, uh, the, these calls for a ceasefire uh, that, you, that so much of the American left is calling for right now, it, it, I, I, I do actually find it, you know, not just wrong, but really deeply offensive that they don't call for release of the hostages first. Right. Yes. It, would be such, it would be such a simple thing. Right. I mean, by now, half the hostages are probably dead. But if, if, if there's if there's still 50 or 60 living hostages, you know, why not say there should be a ceasefire in exchange for the release of all those hostages? It's it just seems to me like a complete moral non-starter to ask for a ceasefire without asking for release of those hostages. I mean, yes, I'm glad you say that because I didn't want to come off too strong on this, but I can't imagine, I put myself in that. So one of my children are being held, right? I'm not going to either want to stop shooting personally at those people or have other people stop shooting at them until my kids are back. And I'm not willing to talk about it until my kids are back. Right. Like just, yeah, just, that, just hard stuff. Yeah. I'm not yeah. like, why well, you're holding my kids in your basement. Mm-hmm. I'm going to shoot at you. Like, I, I just can't understand. <laughs> Yeah, no, me neither. That, that's where I'm, you and I are 100% aligned on that. I think it's outrageous. I think it's immoral um, yes. to, to, to say that. And and I, I would also add to that that there's there's some narratives you sometimes hear now, and I'll say from the left mainly, where they say, well, you know, you have to realize the Palestinians themselves are um, – you know, oppressed people. They're oppressed by Hamas. Hamas is the terrorists and Hamas is an authoritarian dictatorship. And the, the Palestinian people don't deserve to, to suffer the brunt of all that because they're being first oppressed by Hamas and then bombed by the Israelis. But I think that that can't be right either, because the, the if you remember when when they when the when we had that one week of um, uh, hostage swaps and there was actually the pause for that week, the, the very reason that the pause came to an end on the day that it did, even though um, um, it could have kept being continued for another week or two if there'd been further hostage exchanges is because we got to the point where Hamas, they, they'd already given up. You know, I mean, they said they were keeping some soldiers, but there were plenty of other civilians, too. But they got to the point where all the civilians that were being held hostage no longer were being held hostage by Hamas, right? So it's not just Hamas that's holding all these hostages. <laughs> In fact, Hamas couldn't even get their hands on the other civilian hostages because it's just other other uh, Palestinian terrorists in Gaza who weren't even affiliated with Hamas who were just keeping all these other hostages and I, and I think that 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 fact um, just really belies this kind of notion that there's some great separation between um, Hamas and, and the the Gaza people and that the, the, the Gaza people um, don't want the same things that Hamas wants or that Hamas is somehow not an authentic representation of the of people I mean if that was true then there wouldn't be so many other hostages being held by people where Hamas doesn't even have any access to those hostages or those people who are holding them. Yeah, I I agree. It, it, it just kind of it baffles me a little bit on that front that there seems to be a downplay of all of those peoples who were trapped, what happened to them and continued to be held prisoner. Uh, yeah. and, and again, and they aren't I mean, they are civilians who are being held. Right. We're not right. talking about these aren't. I mean, there are a few potentially kind of military-esque, but even they wouldn't exactly a- apply because they were captured during a period of non-war. Ergo, right. you're still not holding them as prisoners of war. So, I mean, even calling them military is 
internet in terms of international law not true because you weren't engaged in a conflict it it would it would be like us snatching up a bunch of soldiers out of china and then attacking and saying oh yeah by the way now we're holding your soldiers as soldiers <laughs> like yeah it doesn't like, actually, that's not how that works i'm so glad you pointed out because there's even a paradox in hamas's position i mean if, if they're claiming that they have the right to hold these soldiers then they're claiming that they are in fact at war but if they're claiming that they are in fact at war then how are they complaining about being bombed yeah well well, yeah. again, on that happy Christmas note, um, <laughs> but I will say, you know, I think sometimes we always think of, you know, of Christmas or things as being times of happiness, but I will say there are a variety of holidays that happen in this time of year. And uh, if you are like me, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Uh, but if you are one of many other amazing traditions, I want to uh, wish you the holiday uh, that you choose. And uh, further, I want to make sure that regardless of your uh, uh, belief system, Mike has asked me to give you this very special message. And he asks that all people unite in celebrating the secular and religious holiday of Festivus on December 23rd. He did. He texted me that. that we need. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so for those of you who have already put up your Festivus polls in anticipation of the 23rd, uh, good for you. Uh, uh, Ken, I, I hope that you have a good holiday as well. Yep, you too, Trey. And happy festivus. That's from Seinfeld, right? Is that yeah, what it comes from? yeah, the airing of grievances. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, I will remind us all one more time that our weekend show will resume on Mike 30 with Mike and Jay closing out 2023. So again, this is our la our last show uh, of 2023, uh, Ken, uh, for our weekend shows at least. But we still do have our supporter exclusive show that will come out next week, as it always does in the midweek. And we'd love for you to join us on that. Uh, what Ken and I have been doing for these, so for our, I guess, our technical last show of the year, uh, uh, the, what we've been doing is we've been going through the U.S. Constitution. We've gone all the way through the, uh, the, uh, the text of the Constitution in 2023, and we've now been into the uh, amendments. And so we're going to be dealing with the freedom of press this week, and we'd love for you to be a part of the freedom of press. And to be able to be a part of that, you're going to have to be a supporter uh, because that is one of our supporters' items is our supporters' midweek show. Uh, as a matter of fact, the podcast, it doesn't work without supporters. And so when you become a supporter, we want to make sure that you get cool stuff for being a part of our family. And so that means things like the, the extra show. It means things like getting this show and other shows ad free, which is really cool, by the way. It also means you get uh, opportunities for us to take a look at things on Discord. There's all kinds of really cool things. And if you want to find all of those things out, all you've got to do is head to patreon.com slash politics, guys, patreon.com slash politics, guys. And especially this holiday season, I would suggest, I know you're already you know, spending your gifts, maybe give the gift of the politics, guys, to somebody that you know and love by heading to patreon.com slash politics, guys. I know I know other people have done this for me. Matter of fact, I was in line for the turkey trot the other day, and I, I was giving my name to get my uh, info. And the person next to me was like, you're on the podcast. And I was like, yeah. And they said, you know, I actually, I'm gifting that to a, a couple of my family members for Christmas. I was like, that's really cool. So again, just a little thought for you. You might want to head to patreon.com slash politics, guys, and make that, that your last minute uh, uh, holiday gift. There's other ways, of course, to support the show as well. You can do that at Venmo, where we're at politics, guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those are in our support links and in our show notes as well as by heading right there to politicsguys.com slash support. Now, if you'd like to get that midweek show, but you're not in a position financially to do it, hey, get that. All you got to do is shoot an email. If you'd reach out to Mike at politicsguys.com, we can get you set up and you'll get a fun little link. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, it is a really big deal when you rate and subscribe. I mean, think the last time. Do you do you scroll down 100 places to get to the next podcast of your choice? My guess is no. And the way that those algorithms work is by rating and by sharing these episodes, we go higher and higher. So it's really free. If every week you could just go in there, rate us, rank us. That's amazing. And then don't forget, you can always do that on social media as well. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or anything else you'd like to share with us, you can always reach out to mail at politicsguys.com. 
We're also on Facebook and X, where you'll find the links and the show notes. A special holiday thanks to the executive producers of The Politics Guys, who are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new show, well, in a couple of weeks. I hope you'll join us then.